week, we're going through the four key words in that uh, mission statement, which is gospel, kingdom, community, and mission. And the goal is for us to build a common understanding of what these words mean so that we have a common understanding of what our mission is. So we've talked about the gospel, how it's the good news that Jesus brought God's kingdom and is advancing God's kingdom in the world in his people and in his creation. We talked last week about his kingdom, how it's uh, God's people in God's place under God's rule. And today we're going to be talking about community, uh, what it looks like or what it means for us to be a community of believers. So we're going to start uh, by reading a passage in Acts, and then we're going to kind of jump around to a couple other passages that teach us more about what community is and what it means for us to have it. So I'm going to read Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. <coughs> it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you, you made us. You made us in your image, and you made us relational like you are relational. That you created us to, to have a relationship, not just with you, but also with one another. Uh, and we thank you that your word uh, tells us those things, and that we get to see what it looks like to be part of the body of Christ, to see what it looks like to be part of the household of God, to see what it looks like to be a community of those who trust in Christ. I pray today that as we look at your word, that that community wouldn't just be some idea to us any longer, but that we would see the privilege that we have as fellow saints, as fellow members of the church, of, of, of the community that Jesus died to give us. That, that we would understand that the relationships we have with one another, they're not just because you know, we, we, we like each other or because we have things in common or because we're at similar life stages or because we go to the same church or the same gym or whatever, but that instead we would understand that your son died to bring us united together in himself and present us to you. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. It is in your name we pray. Amen. So, <clears throat> Acts 2, right? This is Luke giving us a summary of what it was like in the early church. This is the kind of community they had. This is the kind of fellowship they had. And you can't uh, talk about biblical community and not and not read this passage. This is this is the dream, right? They they uh, <clears throat> were all filled with awe together. They had common fellowship. They had common faith. They had common everything. They gave to one another's needs. They uh, spent time together. Everyone in their community had everything in common and had all of their needs met by everyone in the community. Like that's that's crazy. 
We don't know, we don't experience community like this. And so uh, the question is, like, where does this kind of community come from, right? How, how, how do we get this? How did they get this? And so the, 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 maybe the immediate answer for us, if we wanted to read around the book of Acts, is to say, well, you know, in, in Acts and in the Gospels, Jesus gives them a common mission. And so all their lives are about all the same thing. And so they're on this common mission. And because they're on this common mission, they have common faith and a common purpose in their life. And so, you know, maybe, maybe that's why they have this kind of community, because they're all united around the same goal. But, but let's ask a bigger question. Where does community come from? Not where does this kind of community come from, but, but where does, where does any kind of community come from? And so to get that answer, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. So flip over to Genesis chapter 2. This is in origin of community uh, in God's creation. We're going to read verses 15 through 25. This is what it says. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So, in this passage, there's there's a few few things happening. First is it says that God, you know, put put Adam in the in the garden and said, you can eat of every tree except for this one tree. Don't eat of this tree. But verse 18 is where things kind of start to get interesting. And normally, when we when we read through this passage, uh, we're focused on one of two things. Most of the time, when this passage gets brought up or gets studied, it's in one of two areas. Either it's about you know, kind of gender roles in society, the differences between men and women, and this, you know, what, is, what does it mean that Eve's a helper and that Adam needs help? How, how, how do, should we understand things about men and women based on this and other passages? So maybe, maybe that's the lens that we think about when we read this passage. Or, number two, the, the far more common one is, you know, at a wedding, right? All this stuff about leaving and cleaving, the two being naked and unashamed, like that's, that's good marriage stuff. This is where marriage was created. But we're going to take all that stuff and just kind of throw it out this morning. Right? We're not going to think about marriage. We're not going to think about gender roles. Instead, we're going to think more broadly about community. Uh, God says in verse 18 that it's not good for man to be alone. It's better for him to have relationship, for him to have someone else in his life. And the person that God gives him in this passage is woman, but it's better for him to have someone 
than for him to be alone. And the, the first thing that should shock us about verse 18 is that God says, it is not good. And we've probably read this passage dozens of times, so that doesn't really stand out to us because we know how God fixes the problem. But if you're reading through Genesis for the first time, verse 18 would be shocking. Because up to this point, the kind of recurring refrain in the book of Genesis is that God does something, he creates something, and then he says either it's good or it's very good. So Genesis 1-4, God saw the light was good. Genesis 1.10, God saw that it was good. Genesis 1.12, God saw that it was good. Genesis 1.18, God saw that it was good. Genesis 1.21, God saw that it was good. Genesis 1.35, God saw that it was good. Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Genesis 2.18, it was not good. And remember where we are in Scripture. This is, this is Genesis 2. It's not Genesis 3. Right? This is before the fall. God's looking out in his good creation, and one thing isn't good. And the one thing that isn't good is that man is alone. So God does something about that. He gives him relationship. He gives him community. But the question that we should ask is why? Why isn't it good for man to be alone? Why is it better for us to have someone have some form of relationship than than not have any. Why did God decide it's it's not good for man to be alone? Well, the the first answer is, well, he's God, right? So he gets to decide whatever he wants. And like, he is good. He is the standard of goodness. And so he decided it's not good for man to be alone. Bam, it's not good for man to be alone. That's the answer. Why isn't it good for man to be alone? Because God said so. But let's be little kids. But why? Well, because God knows everything, right? He's all-knowing. He's all-wise. He knows the end from the beginning. He just, he just knows that it's not good for man to be alone. So it's not good for man to be alone because God said so and because God knows best. But why? This is my answer. This is what I think the answer to that question is. Why? Isn't it good for man to be alone? Because it's not good for God to be alone. Right? When he made us, he made us, Genesis 1 tells us, in his image. And God is a relational God. God exists in community. So the reason why it's not good for man to be alone is because it's not good for God to be alone. The reason why it's better for us to be in relationship is because God exists in relationship. The reason why he created us for community is because he made us in his image and he exists in community. I'm talking about the the Trinity, right? God has always existed and will always exist, not alone. Uh, The Trinity, we, we talked about it in the fall, and so I'm sure all of you remember everything that I said about it, but... We're just going to give a a refresh this morning just in case. There are three core truths to the Trinity. The first is that God exists as three persons, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God exists as three persons. The second core truth is that each one of those persons is fully God. The Father is fully God. Jesus is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. The, The third key truth in the Trinity is that there's one God. And I know that that maybe sounds 
uh, contradictory, right? You said there's three, and they're each full of God, but there's one. But, but it's not a contradiction. We're not saying that there's three gods and that there's one God. That is a contradiction, right? Those two things cannot be true. We're saying there's one God that exists as three persons and that each of those three persons is fully God. The point is that God exists in Trinitarian community. He's not on his own. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They do enjoy and have enjoyed perfect relationship forever. Uh, And so God, when he made people, he made us to be like him. And because we're like him, it's not good for us to be alone because it's not good for him to be alone. So our community flows out of who God is and who he made us to be. He created us for community. So the question that we should ask then is, why don't we have perfect, wonderful, amazing, just natural human community all the time? Right? If God made us to desire community, why are there introverts? Why are there people who don't want community? Or, on the other side, why are there extroverts? Why are there people who like have to be around people, and as many people as possible? And they, they, they can't just be around just a few people, or they'll feel like something's broken, broken in them. Like, wh- why do these people exist? Why, why do we struggle to have community if God made us for community? The answer to that question is that Genesis 3 happened. Right? Adam and Eve, despite the fact that God gave them this relationship that would uh, equip them to be who God made them to be in his creation, they sinned. Right? Adam broke the one rule that God gave him, which was to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, no, I know best. I'm going to eat of this tree. Eve ate of that tree. And because of their sin, because of the fall, community gets broken. Right? The fall, sin, it breaks our relationships. And if we were to read through Genesis 3, we would see that it, it causes conflict in four main relationships. It causes distance between us and God. That's the big one. Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden. It causes conflict between us and other people. Uh, Genesis 3.15 talks about how there's going to be strife between uh, Eve and Adam. There's going to be conflict in that relationship that God created for them. There's conflict between us and us, right? There are now these warring desires within us. And then the fourth one is there's conflict between us and creation. Adam was supposed to work and keep the garden, but now God tells him in Genesis 3 that like thorns and thistles are going to come forth from the ground. By the, by the sweat of his brow, he's going to cause bread to come out of the earth. So he's got to work hard in God's creation now. There's, there's conflict all around. All of these relationships that God created us for are broken because of sin. And then the rest of the Old Testament tells the story of the spread of that conflict. Right? We could look at any passage in the Old Testament and see it through one of those lenses. Right? Is this conflict between God and people? Is it conflict between people and people? Is it conflict between people and creation? Or is it conflict between some person and themselves? Right? It's the unfolding story of that conflict. So the question then is, what gets us from Genesis 2, God creates perfect community, Genesis 3, we screw it up, to Acts 2, 
where people can have true, authentic community again? What changes in between Genesis 3 and Acts 2? What's the answer? Jesus, right? The Sunday school answer again is the right answer. Jesus changes. He comes and he redeems community. We see this in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 11 through uh, 22. Paul here is, he's, he's unpacking the realities of the gospel. And he begins to apply it to uh, the most significant problem that the early church was facing with regard to their community with one another. And that's the division that existed between Jews and Gentiles. And this is what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. He says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time in the past separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So there's a lot, a lot going on in this passage. But we're focused on a couple things this morning. The first is Paul tells them uh, what, what, what it was like for them in their former situation, the Gentiles. This is, this is where you were. This is what it was like. And he tells them that they were separated from two things. The first thing, the big, the big one, they're separated from Christ. The second one is they're separated from the commonwealth of Israel. They're, they're separated from the promises that came with being a member of the covenant or the commonwealth of Israel in the Old Testament. So they're, they're separated from those two things, from God and from Israel. And because of that, Paul tells us the Gentiles are uh, without hope and without God. They're, they're, they were in a, a bad situation. That was their situation before Christ came. But 13, now in Christ Jesus... You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he's going to tell them in the rest of the verses two things that change because of what Jesus has done. The first one is dealing with their, their second separation. They're separated from Israel. Because of what Christ has done, they're not separated from Israel anymore. He says that he himself is our peace. He's made us, that's Jew and Gentile, both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That's, that's two things he's talking about there. These are two things 
that cause division between Jews and Gentiles. The first is an actual wall. When he says dividing wall of hostility, he's not speaking metaphorically. He's talking about a wall that existed in Jerusalem that separated Gentiles from Jews. It was a place in the temple that said, if you're a Gentile, you can't go any further. You can't go into the place where we believe God's presence is. You've got to stay on the outside because we just don't like you. Only Jews can go this far. The second thing is the Old Testament law, which was a, a lifestyle separation between Jews and Gentiles. You know, they didn't, they didn't eat the same. They didn't live the same. They didn't act the same. And when Gentiles started believing the gospel, the early church wrestled with the question of what do we do with the Old Testament law? The answer is, we don't do anything with the Old Testament law. You don't have to keep the Old Testament law to be a Christian, uh, even though there were lots of Jews that wanted to force lots of Gentiles to do just that. So Paul is making it very clear here that because of what Christ has done on the cross, everything that could have separated Jews and Gentiles is gone. It is, it is spiritually done away with. And he says that he did this, verse 16, by, uni by uniting us both in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There's, there's kind of two ways that applies. But we're going to talk about the first now, which is the Jew-Gentile relationship. Right? If we want to follow Jesus, there's, there's two communities we can be a part of. The first one is being in Christ. The second one is being not in Christ. And so there is no Jew-Gentile community anymore. There is no uh, racial divide within the church. right? If we are a member of the body of Christ, we're a member of the body of Christ with everyone else that's a member of the body of Christ. There, there is no division that exists among the community of faith. Right? We're in Christ if we trust in Him. And if we're, we don't want to be with all those people, then we're outside the faith. And so as, as we think about the gospel and begin to think about how it should apply to ethnic and racial divides that exist in our world right now, that's one thing we should be very clear about. That it's not a choice for us about who we're united with in Christ. If we want to be in Christ, we're united with anybody that trusts in Him. And if we don't want that, then we need to be go, go be a part of another community. Because Jesus' church is the only one that exists for those who want to trust in Him. So, for the Jews and Gentiles, that's what Paul is making very, very clear to them. So the first thing that he says the gospel does is it does away with that separation between Jew and Gentile. The second thing that it does is it does away with their separation between them and God. He says that in his body, he reconciles us both, that's Jew and Gentile, to God, thereby killing the hostility. So he's pointing out that God, uh, that, that Jesus on the cross, his death on his cross, through his blood, through what he has accomplished on our behalf, it redeems both our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. It says that he killed the hostility. What, what kind of hostility is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the hostility that exists between us and God, and the hostility that exists between us and other people. And because of what Christ has done for us, if we are in Christ, that hostility is done away with. And that's it's really important for us to understand what, what hostility is. 
Because hostility is something that only ends when someone dies. Right? It's, it's a conflict that is so significant that there is no middle ground. There is no truth. There is no way for us to say, like, let's just, let's just agree to disagree. Hostility is, I'm not going to be okay until you're dead. And the hostility between us and God ended when Jesus died. Because of that, verse 19, so then, because of what Christ has done, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Because of what Christ has done, he has bought us back into community. Not with, not just with God, but also with one another. And I think for us to understand just how significant that is, right? That like we, we, we say that, we hear that, we understand that, but I think it's really easy for us to forget what it cost Jesus to do that for us, to bring us back into communion with God, to bring us back into communion with one another. And so I want us to, to flip over uh, to Mark 15. Because there's a part here that I don't think that we think about enough, or at least deeply enough. I read verses 13 through 39. <clears throat> it says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. So this is what, what's happening on the cross, and I want us to focus on what Jesus says in verse 34. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So remember. At the beginning, we were talking about that, that Trinitarian community right? that has always existed between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What I want us to see in, in this verse in Mark is to recognize that on the cross, that, that changed. Um, in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, For our sake, he, that's, that's the Father, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Father made Jesus to be sin, so that in Jesus we could become righteous in God's sight. And we, we love to focus on the good news in the second part of that verse. Right? That's, that's great news. We can become righteous because of what Christ has done for us. But we shouldn't overlook the first part and what that really means. Right? The Father made Jesus to be sin, even though he hadn't sinned. Jesus taking on sin on the cross 
caused him to experience something that he had never experienced before. And that is division and conflict in his relationship with the Father. For the the first time, he experienced what it was like to be the guilty party in sin. And the broken relationship that results from sin. Because Jesus took on our sin, this, this long, unbroken relationship he had with the Father and with the Spirit gets broken. That's why he cries out in this way on the cross. That's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because for the first time ever, he feels forsaken by the Father. Because he took on our sin. In order to bring us back into relationship with his Father, he allowed his relationship with his Father to get broken. At least temporarily, right? He's he's with God in perfect fellowship now. But that doesn't take away from what he did on the cross on our behalf. He allowed himself to be abandoned so that we could be adopted. But he allowed his communion with the Father to be broken so that we could have communion with the Father. So so what what do we do with that? Two things. The first thing is that we should absolutely praise God for what Christ has done for us. I know that, like, we, we know this, and we, we've heard it before. We know, like, yeah, I didn't have a relationship with God, and then what Jesus did, now I have a relationship with God. But it's only because we're still broken that that doesn't cause us to be overwhelmed with emotion and joy because of what Christ has done for us. Right, we know what broken relationship is like, and so that's that's old news to us. It wouldn't be significant for us to experience that again because we've experienced it before. We shouldn't let that cause us to miss the grace that Jesus has given to us because of what He allowed to happen with His relationship with the Father. So that should cause us to praise God for what Christ has done for us. That should cause us to be moved when we sing about it. And we sing songs about it, recognizing there's more to what Christ has done for us than I know or ever will know. The second thing that I think it should do for us this morning is that it should cause us to, to be in community. Right? We, we don't have to do anything to create community as a church. We already are a community. Right? It, it's, it's crazy for me to think that, you know, like as a pastor, like if, if we just, you know, have some fellowship events or, you know, small groups or, or whatever, then we'll have good community together. As if I can do something that Jesus couldn't do on the cross. You know, like he died to purchase a community for us. But, but really it's, 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 it's what we do to, to make that happen. No. Right? We already are a community. Like, if we trust in Christ, we are fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. We're fellow members of God's household. We're brothers and sisters. We are a community already. The only thing we have to do is put ourselves into it. 
and be a part of it and experience what Jesus died to give us. So if we want community like Acts 2 tells us about, start doing it. Like, be with people. And I, and I get that it's hard. Right? There are people that we, we don't like, we don't click with. You know, some people, some of us in, at least at BC, are already really close to having everything in common. We have a whole lot in common. But there's other people here that we don't have lots of stuff in common with. And it's way easier to spend time with people that you have more stuff in common than people you have less stuff in common with. But guess what? We're all part of the same community together. So we need to spend time with people even though it's hard. And one of the things we're seeing in the church right now on a, on a bigger scale is the, the racial divide that Jesus died to heal still working itself out. Right? Just because Jesus died to create a community for us as believers doesn't mean that it's super easy now. In the same way that just because Jesus died to give us access to the Father, it doesn't mean that we always feel like we're super closely connected to him all the time. We have to work. We have to be disciplined. We have to grow in our community with God. We have to be disciplined. We have to work to grow in our community with one another. But the reality is that we don't have to do anything to be connected to one another. We already are, right? If, if I know that someone else has trusted in Christ and in Christ alone for their salvation, that should be enough for me to be willing and excited and eager to get to know them. Even if what I find out is stuff that doesn't interest me at all, right? They're interesting because Christ died for them. And they're probably not interested in all the stuff I'm interested in either. So, the only thing, not the only thing, the main thing that keeps us from community, I decided what I want to say. I want to say two things. First is, the only thing that keeps us from community is sin. The second thing is the main sin that keeps us from community is selfishness. It's because I want to do what I want to do and I don't want to be around people that are going to let me do whatever I want to do. And so I'm going to stay home and do what I want to do. Even though once you get married and have kids, conflict comes to that too. You don't always get to do what you want to do. But maybe most of the time. Certainly, if you go be around other people, you get pushed on. Right, The sin that you like gets worked out in community. You begin to get sanctified by getting to know people who encourage you and hold you accountable and, and call sin out in your life. We don't like community because we like our sin. So put yourself out there. Build relationships with people. Grow in community because that's the main way that Christ sanctifies his church is by us being together and being with one another and allowing sin to get called out and confessed in the life of the church. And remember that the main metaphor that uh, the, the New Testament uses to talk about the church is family. 
We don't get to decide who we're related to. You just kind of have to spend time with them. And because of that, we have relationships with those people. You don't get to decide who comes to BC or who doesn't come to BC. You don't get to decide who trusts in Jesus and who doesn't trust in Jesus. This this is your family, so be in your family. And be happy that God brings people into our family that are different than us. Because if all of us are the same, this is the most boring place to be. And the only thing we're going to do is we're going to be more happy about who we are and we're never going to change anything. It's when God brings in people who are very, very different from us that we begin to see there's other things out there that are more exciting than than what I already know. There are people out there that have experiences that are different than the experiences that I've had in my life and the people around me that have had similar experiences have had in their life. It's when people who are different come into the body that we begin to see this great and amazing thing that Christ has created, where there are different people who have different skills and different beliefs and different attitudes and different everything, and we begin to rub off on one another, and the church actually reflects the world that we're called to redeem. So, community is something that God created us for. And like everything else he created, we screwed it up with our sin. And we continue to screw it up with our sin. But Jesus came to redeem it, to make it new. There is one day in which all community is going to be better than the community that's described in Acts 2. But right now, we're in that already not yet. Where sometimes community is great, and sometimes it's awful. Sometimes we really want to be in it. Sometimes we really don't want to be in it. Our role as a believer is to ask God to bring the kind of community that he's going to create later now and to participate in that with one another. So I'm going to pray, and then Daniel's going to come and introduce the Lord's Supper. Father, I thank you that it it is not good for man to be alone. And you made us relational like you are relational. That you created us for relationship. And that we get to have friends and neighbors and coworkers and spouses and kids and other people who we get to live in relationship with that you didn't leave us on our own. And we thank you that even though humanity rejected you and rebelled against you and and broke all the relationships that you gave us, that you sent your son to bring us back to bring us back into relationship with you and to bring us back into relationship with one another. And that now, again, as we strive to follow Jesus, you remind us in your word that it is not good for man to be alone. That you gave us the church 
community and family to be a part of with one another, to, to grow in our faith and to learn more together about who you are and what you've done for us. Pray now that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, that we would remember that we're celebrating the one thing that every single one of us has in common with every other person who's ever trusted in Christ. That we believe that Jesus came and lived a perfect life and died in our place, paying the penalty for our sin so that we could be made righteous, that we could be redeemed and adopted. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. You allowed your relationship with the Father to be broken so that ours could be restored. It's in your name.